by the time I joined the Harry Potter series, um, there were so many physical details to keep track of as Ms. Rowling's world just kept getting bigger and bigger and um, more and more magical inventions and places and things um, that it became my job as the continuity editor to track all of those physical details. Welcome to our first episode of Scholastic Reads, our new podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, editor-at-large at Scholastic. We have a lot going on around here, and this podcast will give you a glimpse inside. What better topic to begin with than Harry Potter? In the U.S., the magic began the moment the first book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, was published in September of 1998. But no one could have predicted the Harry Potter mania that would follow. Seven books and all these years later, the series has been translated into 74 languages. Across the globe, more than 450 million Harry Potter books are in print. Every day, our fans and followers on social media write to us about how profoundly Harry changed their lives. You'd be hard-pressed to find a child or an adult who has not somehow been touched by the characters and the story. What accounts for this popularity? As a New York Times reviewer wrote, the world of Harry Potter is a place where the mundane and the marvelous, the ordinary and the surreal coexist. It's a place where cars can fly and owls can deliver the mail, a place where paintings talk and a mirror reflects people's innermost desires. It's also a place utterly recognizable to readers. There's no question the magic of Harry Potter endures, which brings me to our first guest, Cheryl Klein. Cheryl is executive editor at Arthur A. Levine Books, the imprint at Scholastic that brought the series to the U.S., she served as continuity editor on the last two Harry Potter books. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. I am so honored to be here. Here is my first question. What is a continuity editor, and why was such a role so vital in the Harry Potter series? Well, continuity editor is a term that we took from film. Um, my boss, Arthur Levine, is the real editor of the series. He's the one who acquired the first book back in 1997. It was a really a huge, huge gamble at the time. Um, but I worked with him on the last three books, and editors have to keep track of both the, like, the physical details of the world that readers are reading about, like what characters have in their pockets and the distance to where they're going. And they also have to keep track of how the, those facts make readers feel. You know, is this the right emotion to evoke at this time for readers or for the larger plot? Like, do we need people to be really scared right now or something like that? And um, so editors do this on every book. We keep track of both the facts and the feelings. But by the time I joined the Harry Potter series, um, there were so many physical details to keep track of as Ms. Rowling's world just kept getting bigger and bigger and um, more and more magical inventions and places and things um, that it became my job as the continuity editor to track all of those physical details. And so the way we described it was often that Arthur took care of the feelings and I took care of the facts. What were some of the funniest facts that you took care of? Oh, goodness. Um, one of them is, uh, like, how many legs are on the stool on which the sorting hat sits when it comes out for the sorting? Is it three legs or four? We have to know that. Um, how was venomous tentaculus spelled? 
Um, and, and, you know, sometimes J.K. Rowling would be working her own little twists on things, like uh, her own unique spellings, like apparate. Um, you know, we had to make the decision as apparation, A-P-P-A-R-A-T-I-O-N, or apparition, which is another word, which is for a ghost, you know, also. And, and do we want that double meaning? Like all of these decisions that had to be made and then keeping that con- consistent across all the books. While you were working on this series, what were some of the most dramatic moments you faced transporting manuscripts back and forth? Well, there was so much excitement and, uh, um, and interest in the series that we really did not want the manuscripts on the internet in any way. You know, Harry Potter fans are so internet savvy, we didn't want to take any chances with um, the story getting out there before Ms. Rowling was ready for the story to get out there. So uh, we actually flew the manuscript back and forth on uh, the physical copies of it. Um, we would go to England and get the manuscript, and then we would bring it back to the United States. And um, I had the pleasure of doing that for both books uh, six and seven. And um, on book six, I flew over there to England. I got the manuscript um, one morning, and then I went to Heathrow to, to get on the plane, and it turned out there had been a huge snowstorm in New York City that day. So I had this manuscript that's probably, you know, five inches thick of paper or something in my backpack. I'm hanging around Heathrow thinking, nobody can know I have this. It's the world's most valuable manuscript. There's huge excitement about it. And I am just another 20-something here in the airport, you know. And um, so finally I get on the plane after my flight was delayed like two hours. We go on the six-hour, seven-hour flight to, back to New York. Um, and then our plane has to fly around for two more hours because they had to clear the, heath- the runways at JFK. Finally, we land. Um, and then it turns out that the snow had choked the air train. So I couldn't take the air train. Um, I had no American money for some reason. And my ATM card didn't work. So I couldn't take a taxi. Um, finally, I managed to get on a bus to Jamaica and Queens. And then um, it took me, I think, probably three hours and four more subway transfers to get back to my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And at that point, I had been traveling for 20 hours with this manuscript in my bag. Um, But the the even funnier story is kind of when I went to England for book seven, I got the manuscript, I go to Heathrow, everything's going much more smoothly than for Deathly Hallows. And, um, And then I get pulled out of line for a random bag check at Heathrow. And wow. so, you know, you have to empty your bag on a table in front of people. And so I take out this manuscript, you know, six inches tall of paper. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say if she looks at it and she, like, recognizes the names Ron and Hermione and Harry? And, um, and the security guard starts sort of paging through it even. And I thought, okay, I will just say it's my fanfic. Because <laughs> nobody would have known otherwise at that point. And, um, and all she said was, you have a big pile of paper here. I was like, yeah, it's a big pile of paper. You're right. She said, uh-huh. And she passed it back to me. And <laughs> with your heart and, racing? Yes. And I made it back to New York with my secret intact. Fantastic. Good yeah. job. Good job. Uh, why do readers have such a passionate curiosity about Harry? Why do they love the character so much? That's a great question. I think it's something we've all been trying to figure out in publishing so we can make it happen again. Um, I think it's, you know, these started out as children's books first. You know, they, they were certainly like an all-ages phenomenon now. But And I think Harry is a kid that many people, I guess of all ages, can relate to. 
You know, he, as a child, he hates his teachers. He struggles with homework. He goofs off sometime in class. He has great friends and a pet. He crushes on a cute girl. You know, that all these things that are really, um, most American kids, kids can really have that experience and really relate to. So we connect to that in him. At the same time, there's all these awesome magical twists on all his everyday experiences. You know, his pet is an owl. Uh, his teacher that he hates teaches him potions. You know, his, his sport that he plays takes place on a broom. And so all of that, like, all the emotion remains really relatable and familiar, but the, but the way she's put this magical twist on it makes it fascinating and fun and new to us all over again, I think. It may be the way many kids envision themselves in some sort of magical world. Yeah. Mm. We hear a lot about learning from one's mistakes these days. What kinds of mistakes do Harry and his friends make, and how do they learn from them? That is a, also a really great question, because I think— um, a lot of Harry's struggle is about learning kind of to master his emotions and, and learning to understand his place in this world as, you know, the boy who lived, the boy who, who broke down Voldemort this one time. Um, and in the first four books, he's very much kind of a pawn of events, like his parents' death or the summons to Hogwarts or Voldemort's return. Um, but in book five, you really see that start to change as he forms Dumbledore's army and he um, starts trying to sort of take control of his own life. At the same time, he's going through this massive case of teenage angst. Um, and so uh, and I think part of what drives him at the, to go to the ministry at the end of book five is um, what Hermione calls his saving people thing, <laughs> where he's sort of playing the hero. And, and he feels the need to, um, to save his friends and save Sirius above everything else. And yet by book seven, you've seen him sort of gain some wisdom from that experience and from the sort of disaster that followed after he went to the ministry, um, where he decides to follow the quest for Horcruxes and not Hall Deathly Hall the Hollows. Um, he, he decides to go after the thing that will let him defeat Voldemort long-term rather than the thing that would give him individual glory and eternal life, which is what Voldemort wants. So, so he, um, he learns from his mistakes by, learn by looking at his experiences and, and thinking about what is the long game here? You know, uh -huh. what, what do I really want and how can I get that? Great. As an editor, you talk about the difference between showing and telling in narrative fiction. Could you read a passage from the series that illustrates Rowling's mastery at showing? Yeah, there are so many great possible examples. And I chose one from Chamber of Secrets because I think it's a book that doesn't get a lot of love in the long arc of the series. Um, but this is from Nearly Headless Nick's Death Day Party. On the other side of the dungeon was a long table, also covered in black velvet. They approached it eagerly, but next moment had stopped in their tracks, horrified. The smell was quite disgusting. Large rotten fish were laid on handsome silver platters. Cakes, burned charcoal black, were heaped on salvers. There was a great maggoty haggis, a slab of cheese covered in furry green mold, and in pride of place, an enormous gray cake in the shape of a tombstone, with tar-like icing forming the words, Sir Nicholas de Mimsey Porkington died 31st October 1492. And I think, I think it's such a wonderful example of showing because it's both like, you get all these great sensory inputs, you know, the sight and the smell, and, and you can even like go at the possible taste. And it's also really funny as a, it's you know, great. kind of a typical parody of a, of a really, really bad birthday party. I love the tar. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think Rowling wrote these books for children and not adults, given that the characters wrestle with such big issues? I think that they are 
big issues that we start to grapple with as children quite often. You know, I remember when my great-grandfather died, asking my the big questions of my parents about why that had to happen and what this all meant and everything. And um, And I think that the stories offer children a way to experience these big emotions and big questions in a safe space, you know, and with they're often reading them with friends so they can talk about these experiences or with teachers or with parents. Um, and it provides a sort of model for how you would deal with these things in real life. I mean, I know after uh, the September 11th attacks, a number of people wrote about what Hagrid says to Harry at the end of Goblet of Fire. You know, what will come will come and we'll have to meet it when it does. And um, And I think that's such a it's such a powerful model, you know, of, of courage or resiliency or um, or staying true to your friends and figuring things out that I, I think children really need those values and Ms. Rowling has, has provided a wonderful way to talk about them. True. Everyone wants to know about the author who has a bit of mystery surrounding her. What was it like to meet Rowling? Did you call her Joe? <laughs> I've met her three or four times, I think. And they've all been very far apart. Like uh, my Arthur has a really great relationship with her, but I've been the assistant pretty much. Um, the first time I actually was his editorial assistant. Um, this is right after Goblet of Fire was published. And um, she was here and she took my copy of the book and she wrote, um, To Cheryl, no doubt you will soon be sick of my name, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> and just that, that sense of humility, you know, um, is, is just really wonderful. You know, I think she's certainly... She seems to be very happy with, like, everything she's got going on. But, <laughs> but I, I don't think she's ever lost that sense of humor about it either. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, could you tell us about some of the recent books and the play that have been inspired by the Harry Potter series? Sure. Um, we were hugely excited to publish recently the first ever Harry Potter Illustrated Edition, which was brought to life by Jim Kay, who's a wonderful British illustrator. And this book is gorgeous and lush and full color and it's trim size. Um, it's probably about twice, twice the size of the regular novel edition. And there's some art on every single page, every single spread, which is amazing to see. Um, and, you know, the, the kids that I think of as the Harry Potter generation who were 11 at about the same time that Harry was first going to Hogwarts here in 1998 are now actually old enough to be having kids of their own. <laughs> and we think of this as like a perfect book for families to read together so the little ones can look at the pictures and the older ones can enjoy the stories the same way we all have. And, and we've also seen definitely fans without kids who've been buying them up too. You know, like it's, they've been on the bestseller list for weeks now, which is really thrilling. And for the play, um, we're all huge fans and excited about this too. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is going to premiere in London next summer. Um, and it's the eighth story about Harry and his son, Albus Severus Potter. Um, the synopsis on the website reads, It was always difficult being Harry Potter, and it isn't much easier now that he is an overworked employee of the Ministry of Magic, a husband and father of three school-aged children. While Harry grapples with a past that refuses to stay where it belongs, his youngest son, Albus, must struggle with the weight of a family legacy he never wanted. As past and present fuse ominously, both father and son learn the uncomfortable truth. Sometimes darkness comes from unexpected places. And uh, you know the last line of Deathly Hallows is, all was well? Yes. And after this was announced and this website went up, one of my friends on Twitter added, 
Yeah, it was well for about five minutes. (laughs) And that's what this story seems to be, you know, poor Harry. (laughs) Thank you so much, Cheryl, for this look inside the creation of Harry Potter. Our next guest is Pam Allen, the executive director and founder of LitWorld, a nonprofit literacy organization that empowers children on every continent. Pam loves Harry Potter, so we asked her what lessons the series and Hogwarts could teach us about the ideal learning environment. The Harry Potter books are magical, momentous, and miraculous. And in classrooms across the country and across the world, we see children riveted to these texts. The amazing thing, one of the many amazing things about the Harry Potter series as the texts that accompany children in their growth as readers is it's such an unusual series and that the characters actually grow up. In many series books, the characters stay the same age. They don't change that much. In series books where this happens, um, it's a it's very respectful to children, and it, it really honors their own lived experience. So that's one thing. The other thing is just as a cultural, it's a very iconic, obviously, it's an iconic series. And so children want to be part of the culture of Harry Potter. Even if they've seen the movies or they're going to see the movies, there's something about holding the book in their hands or seeing it on their screen or whatever they're doing with it in the classroom as a classroom companion feels really exciting to them. And then the other thing I'd say is because it is such an icon in in our reading experiences that the child wants to be part of that. And so to have those books in the classroom is so powerful to say to the child, this is a book, these are books that teachers and parents are feel excited about. And it, it's a these are books that help us not only help us learn to be in the world, but also help us learn to read, which is like, you know, amazing to have both of those things happen at once. And the other thing is just how much fun they are and how much fun they are to talk about. When my daughter was reading the Harry Potter series for the 50,000th time and was literally like could have had a PhD at that point on Harry Potter and knew like if we got the page number wrong for something Hermione did, she'd be so annoyed with us. Nobody could keep up. This is the kind of thing. It's such an incredibly high level for the passionate readers of Harry Potter. It's that critical thinking. It's being an expert, being a curator, um, knowing all the details when, you know, and what was Harry eating when that happened or, you know, what did he say to Ron on that given day? And that is what connoisseurs do. And that's what really great readers do. And that's what your college professor will want you to do when you get to college. The other thing I'll say about Harry Potter that I think is so unique is that it's teaching us the um, some of those um, incredible uh, archetypes of text. So uh, not to really make a stretch, because I actually really believe this with all my heart, that children who read Harry Potter, when they get to high school and they go to college and they read um, everything from... Hamlet to Ulysses, they're going to say this feels familiar because these are real archetypes that J.K. Rowling so brilliantly built that the uh, these are archetypal, the hero's journey. Harry sets off on a journey and he's going to discover something and then he 
returns home in different ways and he returns home changed. And also the meaning of home changes for the archetype. So even thinking about what those books can do for a child, both in the classroom and at home, as setting the stage for them to understand Shakespeare and Homer and all kinds of classic texts later is another case to be made. And then finally, just having the books at home and having the books in school to really unify that homeschool experience, to say books we read for pleasure, also books that are really teachable and books that will teach us all something about ourselves and about reading and about the world. And then finally, I'll say something special about Hogwarts, which is Hogwarts itself is a huge message for us as educators and parents. Um, Myself as an educator and as a parent, I often think of Hogwarts as the ideal learning community. And when you think about the fact that Harry had a very difficult childhood, he really was very marginalized and he had terrible traumas as a child and in many different ways. And then he went to school. And when he went to Hogwarts as his school, it was where he learned how to be a child. He learned how to play. He learned how to do magic. In that environment, magic was cherished and his own sense of self was cherished. Hogwarts is a great metaphor for us as teachers and parents to say, what does learning really feel like when it feels magical that the child, Harry, became an adult because he was given his childhood back? And that is a very profound, very profound thing that J.K. Rowling did. She was really advocating for the rights of children to have joy and learning at the same time. Thanks to Cheryl and Pam for joining us. We look forward to a new generation discovering Harry Potter. And thank you for listening and sharing in our mission at Scholastic. We believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to project manager Megan Kaysafer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl, and senior producer Chris Johnson. <laughs>